This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 11. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 6 and then 25 to 36. Starting at verse 1, entitled, The Remnant of Israel. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Moving down to 25, verse 25, the mystery of Israel's salvation. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. As regards, But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So far our reading. Thanks, Ant. You know, in, uh, in life there are, there are some things that just make us go, wow. Guys, you know the scenario, your, your wife comes out in a lovely new dress and you say, wow. It's so beautiful. Men, it's a pretty important line to master. Wow, you're looking at the sunset with things in creation, like a waterfall, a snow-capped mountain, a glacier. There are things in creation that are just so stunningly beautiful. And wow is a kind of the right response. In movies, special effects are designed to wow us. And so you go to a 3D movie with special effects and it's in your face and it's dramatic 
and spectacular, and you say, wow. But really, the greatest wow ought to be our contemplation of God. And unfortunately, often that's not the case. Often when we think about God, we don't go well. I mean, how many of you this morning thought, wow, we're off to church to worship God. Perhaps he's become too familiar to us. Perhaps there's too much noise, as it were, in our lives for us to adequately think about who God really is. Perhaps we are just too focused on ourselves to really contemplate how great and majestic and glorious God is. Admittedly, there are times when we are rightly able to register who God is. And at those times, um, it can be when the person of God and the works of God somehow come home to us with, with freshness and it just blows us away. We feel overwhelmed and so amazed. We, we get excited. We find that we say, wow, what an amazing God we have. And that's really what's happening here to Paul as he comes to the end of chapter 11. And in some translations, it's, it's headed up as a doxology. Doxo meaning glory and logos as uh, a word. It's a word of glory. It's a word of praise. But really, in, in layman's terms, it's wow. And Paul gets to the end of 11 chapters where he has surveyed the plans and purposes of God and salvation. And now as he stands back from all of that, in these words he says, wow, what an amazing, wonderful God we have. He shouts out these words of praise and honour. And this morning we're going to look at them. Because as we do, we see some very important truths about what it is to worship God. And the first thing I want to highlight is this, that true worship always centers on who God is and what he has done. True worship centers on who God is and what he's done. In, in many ways, that sounds remarkably basic, and yet I think it's so important for us to restate that. It's important because so very easily we make worship a subjective experience. That is, we make worship something to do with us, with how we feel, with what we've sung, or when we make worship to do with the right worship atmosphere, or the right worship music, or an, an inspiring worship leader. And if we feel the right way, and if it gives us a bit of a buzz, then we say, it is good worship. But worship is not fundamentally about what we sing or where we sing it or who leads it or the atmosphere. Worship is fundamentally objective. And the object is God. And true worship centers on him and focuses on him. And what we feel is not unimportant, and I'll come back to that later. What we feel is not unimportant, but true worship never begins with what we feel. Worship begins with who God is and what he has done. 
Worship here is not about style. It's about substance. And the substance of worship is this. God is brilliant. God is brilliant. I think in a way that's the essence of verse 33. When Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Essentially, he's saying here, God, you are brilliant. In the previous three chapters, chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, he's been thinking about God's plan of salvation as is worked out amongst the Jews as ancient people and the Gentiles, which are really the rest of the nations. And he deals with deals with this truth, that the Jews whom God has blessed for hundreds and hundreds of years, who he promised a Messiah to, promised them a king who would be their saviour, well, these Jews, when that Messiah came, they rejected him. They killed him. Their hearts were hardened. And so Paul explains that God then brought judgment on the Jews, and he turned his mercy towards the Gentiles, towards us, towards the rest of the nations. And he explains that now the gospel has been advanced among the Gentiles and the Gentiles are being saved. And God's purpose in that is to make the Jews envious, to rouse them to a kind of spiritual jealousy so that they'll see that, that God is blessing others and not them. That they in time will then seek his blessing again and he will pour it out on them and the Jews will be gathered again to him. So now in crude summary, that's what we've been dealing with, or what Paul's been dealing with in chapters 9 to 11. And Paul now stands back from that and he says, how brilliant, what an amazing plan of salvation, because in that plan there is a mixture of, of sternness and kindness. There's, there's justice and mercy. There's a plan for the Jews and there's a plan for the Gentiles. And there's a plan that covers the span of human history. And Paul sits back from it and says, Wow, God, your plans, your purposes are brilliant. And we can push further back to the message of Romans added in chapter 8 and the chapters leading up to that. He is talking about the position of every one of us here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he explains that we are absolutely secure and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And he says that at the beginning of chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus Christ, nothing can ever take away your salvation. You've been adopted into God's family, and he's not about to kick you out. You've been indwelt now by his Holy Spirit. You are in his hands, and nothing in heaven or earth can separate you from that. What a wonderful salvation God has given us in Jesus Christ. And then if you dig into the earliest chapters of Romans, you see why that is so brilliant. Paul begins his letter explaining the wretched sinfulness of the human condition. He explains that we are rebels against God, though deep down in our hearts we kind of know that there is a God Deep down, we kind of know what's right, but we are natural rebels. We don't seek God, we don't please God, and we don't care. But the good news of the gospel is this. God has come to us anyway, 
God has come to rebels. God has come to his enemies. God provided his son Jesus to save lost, utterly lost sinners. God, in the work of Jesus Christ, provided a way for an unrighteous people to be made righteous, for his enemies to be reconciled to him and have peace with God. How brilliant. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In fact, that phrase, if you have a different translation, you, you might have it this way. It's probably two thoughts rather than one. Oh, the depths of the riches and the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And Paul is saying, God is so rich toward us. In the plan of salvation, God is rich in mercy. He's rich in kindness. He's rich in patience. And you experience that every day. Those of you who know the Lord Jesus and have walked with Christ for some time, don't, don't you often marvel that God is just so astoundingly patient with you? I get uh, so annoyed with myself and I get really annoyed with other people. And somehow God bears with us. He doesn't give us the flick. He is so patient. So merciful that he would cover all our sins. So generous. God is not stingy in the way that he deals with us. He is a generous God. An abundant God. And Paul says, Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God's plan is, he says, unsearchable and inscrutable. And we know that too to be the case, don't we? So often we don't really have a clue what God is doing. We don't understand God's ways. We know his plan is good, but we can't quite get our heads around it. I don't understand why he chooses this person and, and, and not that person, and why in this person he, he works now and not then, earlier or later. We can't fathom God's plan. But as we think about it, as we contemplate it, we should frequently be left in a place where where although we don't get it, though we can't get our head around everything, we say, wow, God, you are amazing in what you are unfolding in this world. And true worship always begins there. If you don't know God very well, then you may be able to worship him, but you'll not worship him in a substantial way. Your worship will be superficial. Maybe try it. If you're not growing in your understanding of God and his word and his way, then your worship of him will not be growing. You'll become stale in worship. And that's the reality, isn't it? How many times we, we sing a song here in church together, and by the end of the song, we haven't a clue what we've been singing about. You've sung every single word, but you wouldn't have a clue what one of them was because your mind has been elsewhere. You haven't even thought about it. You might have been thinking about the sound of the music or the, the hairstyle of the woman in front of you or the sunshine and what you're going to do this afternoon. You've, you've sung all these words, but it's been a hollow, empty worship. 
because your mind has not been focused on who God is and what he has done. And many of us read our Bibles and we read it and think about who God is. But if you do not turn your study of God into worship, then do you really know God? God is not just meant to be known for head information. God is meant to be known as the amazing creator and redeemer of all. So, in our study of God and in our study of his word, it needs to continually be turned into praise. If you're depending on style, or depending on atmosphere, or depending on music, depending on leaders to be entertained, so to speak, then, then chances are you're not, you're not actually worshipping God at all. You're worshipping music. You're worshipping worship. You're not worshipping God. True worship centres on who God is and what he has done. And then the second thing I want to highlight is this. That true worship humbles us while it exalts God. True worship humbles us while it exalts God. Kids, if you're here, you'll know this, that if you're on a seesaw with someone else, one of the realities of a seesaw is that you can't both be up at the same time. If you're up, they're down. When you're down, they're up. And often I think relationships work exactly like that. Unfortunately, often relationships work in such a way that, that we put other people down so that we can be up. Why do we gossip and why do we criticise? Why can we be so astute in our assessment of other people's character? Because as we put them down, it sort of makes us feel better about ourselves. But then you come and stand before God. Where are you going to be on the seesaw when God's on the other end? God cannot be criticised. God cannot be judged or can't be reduced. He has to be up. And so it takes humility to worship God. You can't worship God and put him up without going down yourself. That's true of our salvation. And Paul has dealt with this earlier in Romans 3. If salvation is all of grace, if my salvation is fully the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf, then where is boasting? It is excluded. There is no place to boast because Jesus Christ did it all for us. I didn't seek salvation. I didn't deserve salvation. I didn't secure salvation. Jesus did. But just as there is no place for boasting in our individual salvation, neither is, any, is there any place for boasting when it comes to the whole work of the gospel, the whole plan of redemption. Verse 33, once again, Paul says, How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. It is saying that there is no place for questioning God's plan. You can say you don't understand it. You might even say you don't like it, but you cannot question it. God's plan is beyond us, and we should expect that because God is so much higher than we are. In verse 34, he asks these questions. He's quoting from Isaiah. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? And he is saying, God didn't look for our help when he was working out the plan of salvation. God didn't sit down with us and discuss possible ways in which we might work out a solution for this little impasse we had come to. God had not drawn us into the discussion of how we're going to be saved. He has no need of our advice. And then the next question in, in verse 35, which comes from the book of Job, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God is no man's debtor. What God has done for you, he didn't have to do for you. What God and has done in this world, what God has done for our church, what God has done for us in answering our prayers, that peace and comfort would come. He didn't have to do that. God doesn't owe us a good time or a good outcome. God has given to us freely of his grace. Now, I, 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 sort of risk, make, I, I risk making the plan of salvation sound a little trite, but, but who would have thought? Who would ever come up with God's plan of redemption? We are much more likely to come up with what all the other religions have come up with, which is some kind of program of self-help, of things that you've got to do, good works you've got to do, or amounts that you've got to give, or prayers you've got to say in order to perhaps climb that ladder and get closer to God. But of course, Paul has already shown in the early chapters of Romans that that doesn't work and ignores how dead we are in sin. It ignores the fact that our very best works are just like filthy rags in God's sight. No, we, we can only stand back from God's plan and say it is absolutely brilliant. And no one else would have thought it because it has secured our salvation. We must learn to give God all the credit. We must learn to trust him completely. We must learn to submit our plans to his greater plan. And we must learn that we can have hope for the future because God has that in control as well. So worship isn't just about singing. Worship isn't just about coming to church and worshipping here for an hour. Worship is about getting ourselves into a right relationship with God. Getting ourselves in the right place in relation to God. The place where we look up to him and trust him and marvel at him and submit. How is your attitude toward God? Who's up on the seesaw? Or who's down? Is your heart a heart of worship? Which then is a heart that doesn't understand all God's ways and, and readily acknowledges that, but looks up and says, God, you know what you're doing, and I trust you, and I want to trust you more. That's the spirit of worship. And finally, verse 36 tells us that true worship recognizes that God is the end goal of everything. God is the end goal of everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 
From him are all things. That, that is ultimately, everything has its source, its origins from God. He is the creator of all. He created everything out of nothing. Anything that we have ever created or that man has ever produced has been created out of something. And so the original something was that which God gave. All things ultimately have their source and origin in God. And all things are through him. That is, he now sustains and carries everything, and we continue through him. Everything in creation continues through his sustaining power and grace. And ultimately, then everything is to him. That is, all things are designed by God ultimately to be for his own glory. God intends that every person, every event, every situation, ultimately bring honour back to him, the creator and sustainer of everything. And our lives then are to find their end goal in worshipping God. And then this, this passage moves straight on to chapter 12 where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We worship God as we now turn everything towards glorifying God. But our tendency, sadly, is to make our lives about us and not about God. Our tendency is to make life mainly about our happiness, our advancement, our successes, our failures, our agenda, our possessions, our looks, our whatever. Very easily, our life starts to revolve around us. And God is either ignored, or God is just some sort of add-on. And yet, all those other things that we can put at the centre of our lives never really satisfy us. We come away from everything else eventually feeling shortchanged. And that's because other things were never meant to satisfy. Money was never meant to meet your deepest needs. Success at work was never meant to be ultimately fulfilling. Relationships with other people, yes, even your relationship with your wife or your husband, the very best relationships, were never meant to be God's substitute. Rather, all these things are meant to be received as tokens of his grace, as evidences of his kindness, part of his richness toward us, so that we receive those tokens of grace and kindness with a spirit that always acknowledges God and always lifts them up to his praise. We live for him and not for the things that he gives us. I want to finish this morning giving attention to, to one more word in this, one little word in this passage. It's the first word. It's the word, O. Oh. I don't know how long you should make that O. Oh. Some people are sort of, Oh, people. Oh, that beautiful little baby. You know, there's a sort of gushy. Oh, oh, 
is an emotional, expressive, passionate, intensity word. And it turns out that Paul, the theologian, the, the rigorous thinker, Paul, the, the missionary entrepreneur, well, Paul is an O-man. And he gets to the end of this journey through the stories of God's purposes and redemption. And he says, Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There, there is passion in these words. This is not just some little intellectual statement that he feels he ought to put on at the end. This is, this is a big wow. Paul, who, who perhaps knew and understood God better than any of us ever will, who was privy to these immense revelations of who God is, Paul is deeply stirred and passionate and excited by who God is and what God has done. And I think true worship should be like that. True worship should eventually stir us and move us, excite us, blow us away. There should be a well factor. I'm not saying a well factor in church or in every song that we sing. I'm saying that overall, as we think about who God is, and as we seek to offer up our lives to him, there ought to be some measure of passion and emotion in it. Can you worship God without the well factor? I don't know what to say now, do you? I'd love to know what's going on in your head. Can you worship God without the well factor? Well, I, I think you can, and I'm afraid I often do. It's better to worship God without it than not to worship him. But when we worship God without feeling overwhelmed by who he is, our worship is inadequate and still a reflection of our sinful state. And so whenever we worship God without the well factor, we should be asking our Lord God, please stir my heart. Please might I feel these things that I'm saying. Please give me a longing for you. I long to long for you. I want to worship you as you ought to be worshipped. Will you seek a heart of worship? A heart that centres on God and what he has done? A heart that humbles yourself as you exalt God? And a heart that recognizes that at the end of the day, everything is about him and not about us. Amen.